This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the needs of the many outweighs the needs of the lady. everybody, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow. My name is Gepwin. I am joined as always by my good friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this is the most famous and some argue the very best episode of the original Star Trek run, City on the Edge of Forever. Indeed. And, and wait, it kind of took us forever to get here. Hope that's not a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't take us that forever to get here. We're... we're this is the penultimate episode of season one. Yes. Just one more after this, and then we're done with season one. How weird. This is a three-season show. It has 79 episodes. We are currently on episode 29. Or we are on episode 28, actually. But that means we still have more than 50 episodes left. Indeed. So if it peaked here... We're in some sort of trouble here. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, I'd say that I enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, uh, there was some weirdness, but you know, it's, it's kind of I've kind of gotten used to that at this point. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. I I agree, it is the best one we've seen so far, definitely. Though weirdly enough, I feel like that played into it seeming a little worse than it should have otherwise. Yes, you know, the expectations were uh, sort of pumped up, and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Oh, it was, that was just kind of good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the expectations, but then also the the quality of writing in this episode, especially for, like, the dialogue and things, is, is such a step up from the other episodes. It's basically mm-hmm. not even the same characters. Yes, you know, it's like, right, these are, like, kind of, like, relatable people now. This is weird. <laughs> This episode went through what we would now call development hell. And so, yeah, somehow survived. <laughs> it's credited as being written by Harlan Ellison, mm-hmm. who's a very well-known sci-fi writer, if very controversial. A bit, a bit of a bunch of other stuff, uh, you know, including an episode of The Simpsons, apparently. <laughs> uh, probably well-known for, for some books like A Boy and His Dog and the short story I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to be confused with, you know, I have a mouth and ice cream. Yes. It's a little different. That's just about a kid on a hot summer day. <laughs> Who might have a dog, too, you know. <laughs> Got hired for writing on Star Trek before they even aired the first pilot. Hmm. Uh, the, like, first, or the episode that they picked up, rather. Uh, because he he won an award for an Outer Limits episode. Ah. They're like, hey, we want your uh, your brain here. Could you help us out, please? So they started making the script very early on, and it took them almost the entire run of the season to get it to a workable format, including rewrites by DC Fontana, Gene Kuhn, Gene Roddenberry, Stephen Carbasio. So, so everyone was commenting on this here. <laughs> yeah, anyone who's ever written for Star Trek, basically. <laughs> and... Allison wound up hating this episode. That's too bad. He's, it's hmm. pretty well documented that he really hated what they did to this episode. And after seeing some interviews, I kind of agree with him that they ruined his basic kind of core emotional concept that he was working with in his original script. But, uh, you know, there might be, you know, some, you know, uh, leeway, uh, you know, because this is only an hour of television 
we're, we're going for old Harlan Ellis and we might need like two hours or something like that. Yeah, party. I mean, there's there's definitely an amount of this original script that was bloat. And I think we'll go into a bit of that after the synopsis because otherwise it does get confusing. But his original script definitely had some bloat to it that would have needed to be removed for it to fit into a television format. But I think there's a couple of key changes that they made that completely recontextualize how the characters are acting and thinking in the episode that I, I agree kind of ruins the emotional message that they're going for. Hmm. So the main guest star of this episode is someone that you may have actually heard of. Holy smokes. Joan Collins yes. plays someone credited as Sister Edith Keeler. She's a nun? I don't know. <laughs> Unless she's just somebody's sister. <laughs> the sister part comes from the credits. Oh, this okay. is how the character is credited. She's never referenced as sister in the episode itself. And the kind of love story thing suggests that she is probably not a nun. She doesn't really come off as a nun. She doesn't really talk religion like at all. Talks about other stuff, but you know. One of the things that I said uh, suggested that, that some of the inspiration for this character was a uh, was an evangelist named Amy McPherson, who was sometimes known as Sister Amy, but was also not a nun. So sort of more inspired by sort of relations here, yes. Yeah, but no one was a nun, yet they're still called Sister in the credits, but never in the episode. I don't know. But uh, Joan Collins, uh, you know, some of the stuff she's, uh, I guess, most known for is this little show called Dynasty. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> which is a uh, long-running soup, soap opera. She was on it for like a huge-ass long time, like the 80s or something like that. <laughs> the other person that I thought was interesting to mention as a guest star was Bartel LaRue, who you may not have heard heard um, of the guardian that they yes they voiced the guardian yeah we've actually seen him before they are a very well-known voice actor mm -hmm. uh, they did work in star trek obviously mission impossible the brady bunch the time tunnel as well yeah they've very been, appropriate <laughs> they've been in basically everything i always love it when you find a random voice actor and it's like i've never heard this name before but they've been in like a hundred shows i've watched like wait a moment no wonder i keep feeling familiar with these characters <laughs> so uh, you know uh you know, he'll be back again uh in more episodes of star trek because you we already seen him in the squire gothos we'll be seeing him in the game master triskelion patterns of fours bread and circuses the savage curtain all right we've got a lot of ground to cover and we already spent longer than normal on our intro well, we had so. a short episode last week so we could have a little bit longer today so yeah I hope so. I honestly thought there'd be more to talk about in this episode, and I was struggling to find anything we haven't talked about five times before, but... It's very straightforward, and, you know, uh, it's, I guess, maybe it touches on some of the things we've talked about previously better. <laughs> maybe. We join the Enterprise that is examining a planet that is emanating time waves. Yes, there's sirens and flashes and shakes. Oh my. It's buffeting the ship around, and Sulu gets knocked out by one of those pesky console explosions. Yes, just suddenly spam, and then he's you know, on the ground, and like, oh, he's dying or something, I yeah. guess. For so. all of the technological and social advances that Star Trek seems to have in this future, OSHA was not one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they designed these consoles to explode or something. I don't know, maybe that's the only way they're, they're for sure going to have like people ever dying. 
McCoy is brought to the bridge to revive Sulu, and he decides that he's bad enough that he needs to risk giving him a drug called Cordrazine. Kirk warns the doctor that yes. this drug is tricky to work with. <laughs> McCoy just so like, oh, I'm just going to stab him, and then Sulu wakes up, and he seems fine. And McCoy is like, hey, what was that medical comment, Captain? Hmm? McCoy gets to be smug about how he saved a guy's life with dangerous drugs for about 10 seconds before the ship getting knocked sideways again makes him stab himself in the stomach with his own hypospray and inject Whoops. the entire thing into himself. Hmm, this can't be good. Uh, what are the side effects to this, eh? We don't know yet, but it's bad because he starts yelling about killers and runs to the turbolift. It's assassins, murderers, killers! McCoy apparently runs all the way to the transporter room, knocks out the operator, and beams himself to the planet. They need some security in these transporter rooms. This is the <laughs> fourth time this has happened in three episodes. Oh, I, I should add another ward to here. I'll just give you a moment to <laughs> <laughs> Spock finds the library files on Cordrazine. And they have reports that large doses have caused extreme paranoia to the point that McCoy is now in imminent danger to himself and everyone around him. This seems like a good reason to have not let him run off. Yeah. <laughs> that they have no security on this ship for anything. Well, the security does eventually show up, but, you know, it just takes them a while. <laughs> well, speaking of the security, two security guards beam down to the planet with Kirk, Spock, Uhura, and Scotty for some reason. Well, just in case uh, they need to fix McCoy like an engine. Yeah, I don't know why Uhura is there either. Um, well, maybe they figured that the uh, time waves that might make communications difficult, so they need someone who knows what they're doing there. Oh, uh, fine. Use lost story logic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of more interesting if Scotty and Uhura are also there. They, you know, they're really not any good reason to have them there. <laughs> yeah. They start searching for McCoy, but he's comically hiding behind rocks. Yes. <laughs> pops his head out every now and then like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I'm going to go creep over here. <laughs> Kirk gets distracted by a big sparkly stone ring that talks. Yes, the giant donut of infinity here. <laughs> the ring introduces itself as the guardian of forever. I am the guardian of forever. Apparently a being and a machine or neither with that is its own beginning and end, but that's about as far as we get because apparently humans are too stupid to understand what this thing is anyway. Uh, you know, it's just going because, you know, it's just being vague because you just wouldn't get it, man. Come on. <laughs> it's not that I didn't know how to write this. You just wouldn't understand. <laughs> the Guardian, unprovoked, starts to show scenes of Earth history, like knights and people running around on horses and things, and he announces it as a gateway to our own past. Yes, uh, you know, the past of stock footage. Sapiotone stock footage, though. Because, you know, it's the past. Of course, that's how, what color it was. Yeah, everyone knows the past <laughs> was just washed out video. <laughs> Kirk wonders if they could use this to go back in time a day and prevent McCoy from injecting himself. Already trying to play fast and loose with time travel here. Well, this is Kirk. He does that. But Spock says that the portal is moving through history too fast for them to be able to pinpoint an exact day, let alone a week. Well, I, I guess we got a bit, you know... Yeah, we could relive a month, that's fine, whatever. <laughs> Spock immediately just starts chastising himself for not having started recording what's going on with his tricorder so that they could, you know, examine all of human history. So, you know, I'll give him that. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, there's all this history that, you know, we kind of have to rely on, you know, potentially inaccurate records about to really get a good uh, feed on. 
So maybe it looks like record this here. But while he is distracted, McCoy runs up. Do we remember McCoy? Because they didn't. <laughs> He's running around here and still uh, uh, into his uh, paranoid delusions here. He jumps through the portal and disappears. Whee! All of a sudden, Ahura has lost contact with the ship. And the Guardian oh, no. tells them that, in fact, the ship is gone. What happened? As well as everything they have ever known. Well, I guess it's lucky that they're within the time vortex here near the the Guardian. Otherwise, they'd also be vanished from history. Yeah, I noticed they didn't even technobabble that one. I did, yeah, but it was kind of you know easy to sort of extrapolate given that there's all sorts of weirdness going on here. So now to fix things, Kirk has to go back in time for mm. the third time. Yes. <laughs> Let's go back in time. Now, uh, now should, should we do more, uh, you, know, you know, Back to the Future this time, or uh, you know, what, what, what you feeling there? <laughs> I don't remember the Back to the Future song well enough. Back in time, do, 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 do. That's all I remember. I know they awkwardly shoehorn 88 miles an hour into the lyrics somewhere. <laughs> Spock uses the recording thingy that he made if, to, like, have the guardian replay time and then understand exactly when they should jump in and they'll maybe be a week or so off of when mccoy got there and uh, hopefully they'll be able to run into it before he goes goes and changes history and everything will be great yeah you would hope yeah even the guardian's like yeah if you fix time you'll just kind of pop back here. yeah you'll just magically come back it's fine kirk and spock jump into the gate and appear in what we later learn is new york city 1930 we're back in the, in the great depression guys Hooray! Wait. Yay! Kirk very uncharacteristically notices that they are dressed oddly and decides that they should steal some clothes that are hanging out to dry. Yes, you know, uh, I guess it's good on their initiative, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's risky, guys. It's like right out in the middle of daytime. Yeah, here. it's daytime. Also, it's the Great Depression. You're definitely hurting someone. Yes. <laughs> These are probably someone's work clothes. They might, like, need them to go, like, to that job they're barely holding on to. While Kirk is in the middle of explaining how easy they're going to have it here with barbaric laws and whatever, a police officer comes up and accosts them for stealing clothes. <laughs> and it's kind of hilarious scene here because, like, you know, Kirk was just talking about how easy it would be to like explain things, and then he just totally fumbles explaining anything. Yeah, Kirk spends a few minutes babbling about how Spock is obviously Chinese and his ears got stuck in a rice picker when he was a kid. <laughs> A mechanical um, a rice picker. Yeah, yeah that's, it's yeah, that's stupid and time. racist. <laughs> and you know, and Spock's just like just kind of letting him dig his you know you know the, the hole deeper here and in kind of an amused fashion. <laughs> mm. They get tired of this exercise. Do a look over there, and Spock knocks out the police officer. <laughs> Neck pinch. They both run away into the basement of a building with a sign reading Twenty First Street Mission. This might be important. Once there, they change their clothes, and they are soon discovered by a young woman named Edith. Edith. She challenges them on their trespassing, but Kirk, for some reason, decides to just tell the truth about how they're stealing clothes and running from the cops, and she goes, oh, cool, you want a job then? <laughs> you seem trustworthy. <laughs> Two random men who are running from the police have hidden in my basement. Get cleaning. Well, maybe she just really hates cops. Yeah, can't blame her. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk and Spock go into the mission to eat and a random man who is for some reason very weird about how he gets free food at this mission is telling him that they're going to be sorry because if they eat there they have to listen to Edith talk so I guess you're not a fan of her speeches here 
Yeah, I don't understand the issue. Like, you can ignore this. Like, just eat and ignore the person talking. At first, I thought it was like she was going to get up there and sing really badly or something because there was a piano. Yes. But no, she just gets up there and gives a judgy speech. I wouldn't say it's totally judgy. It's very idealistic. It's It starts very judgy. Yeah, yeah. she does start off with, you know, if you're a bum or, you know, you're on the booze and you're unwilling to do, you know, anything, then I have no time for you. But everybody yeah. else, uh, here's some cool stuff about the future maybe being awesome. Well, it starts with the, if you like, if you're just a bum who's lazy or if you can't get off the booze, get out, I don't care about you. Then it's also like, I know everyone's life is horrible, but just barely scrape by and survive because maybe in the future things will be better. Probably too late for you, though. Um, thanks, lady. I'm already, like, in my 60s and I don't have any work. But she somehow weirdly accurately predicts the future of atomic energy and spaceflight. I guess she's up on her uh, current uh, you know, scientific hypotheses. Kirk and Spock get a room, and a few days later, we see Kirk returning from work and Spock building a computer out of random vacuum tubes and a Jacob's Ladder straight out of a Frankenstein movie. And uh, just so folks know, the Jacob's Ladder, I'm pretty sure, serves absolutely no purpose here. (laughs) Yeah, well, it it can't. It never serves any purpose in anything. It's a toy. (laughs) Yeah, you know, even in the, like, crazy sci-fi you know bend all the logic it's kind of useless here he asks if kirk can bring him a block of platinum and kirk gets really annoyed that spock is spending all of their hard-earned money on computer parts so like what else are you are you trying to set up a life here what else are you going to spend money on kirk how do you even understand money (laughs) well maybe kirk doesn't that's the problem (laughs) Edith arrives and offers them more work, but this is apparently just an excuse for them to see a man repairing a clock with a set of fine tools that Spock eyes greedily. That, I will not have to be building something using these, you know, chisels and stone tools. That night, they break into the safe and steal the things, but Edith catches them, she's not very bothered by it, and then she goes out on a date with Kirk. Well, there's also a little exchange where Edith, you know, uh, sort of injects the word captain after Spock says something. And, you know, she's like, you know, she, he always says it even when he doesn't say it sort of thing. Yeah, it's a weird. I don't know. I didn't like that scene even a little bit. It was very yeah, it was weird. A little, it was a little awkward. Yeah. Kind of pointless. <laughs> Edith and Kirk stroll outside where she talks about more about how, like, they're obviously, like, served together in the military or something. Mm-hmm. And Kirk tells her that hundreds of years in the future... There'll be a famous novel written on the theme of Let Me Help instead of I Love You. And he points to a star and goes, he'll live on that planet. And there's no point to this at all. Well, I I guess it does give me an opportunity to uh, point out my knowledge about astronomy. uh, Because, you know, it's like some planet around that star, the the thing is leftmost one uh, of Orion's belt, right? Yeah. Isn't that a nebula? (laughs) Uh. Well, there is a nebula in Orion, but uh, I believe uh, that one's Alnilon. The middle one is Alnatok, and the one on the right is Bintaka. <laughs> I, I used to watch Stargazer with Jack Horkheimer. So. <laughs> <laughs> so at least you got something out of this pointless exercise. Yep. Well, I will also say that this is sort of, you know, showing that Kirk and Edith are kind of like getting personal. I, a little. All it tells me is Kirk is really stupidly telling her about the future for some unknown reason. Well, well she seems an idealistic, you know. 
Maybe he figures that she'll be like, yeah, he's like me. I He's hitting on me. Hmm. <laughs> is he? This is their first actual scene together, and they have no chemistry. And he's basically talking nonsense about how let me help becomes some sort of pivotal message in a novel that we don't have or cannot have any knowledge of. So it is a little awkward, yes. Meanwhile, Spock has gotten his computer hooked up to a screen and is showing newspaper clippings about how Edith dies in a car accident. Oh no, she dies. But it's only for a second because the screen goes all wibbly. And then Kirk comes back and Spock fires up the computer again. And this time the newspaper headline shows Edith, but has a thing about her meeting with the president about a peace movement. And then the computer explodes. FDR meets with Slum Angel or something like that. Yeah, it was the headline. Big picture of Edith. Spock tells Kirk that they are contradicting headlines because there's one where she dies and one where she becomes an incredibly important political figure and probably can't do both of those things. Yeah, so it seems like there's some sort of divergent timeline situation going on here. So whatever happened is involving Edith somehow. Hmm. So something involves Edith. And one of these two timelines is the one that leads to the future where the Enterprise doesn't exist, but they don't know which one. Yes, apparently she dies of a traffic accident. Hmm. And say that they need to figure this out, but McCoy is still coming and he's a weird random element. Yes. Speaking of McCoy, he suddenly appears in the street in full view of a man who's stealing milk for no other reason than to have him drop milk on the street. Oh, I guess the guy would, you know, technically be stealing milk because he's thirsty, but how the, the, the scene works out is exactly that. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to have something fragile that could go crash on the floor, on the ground here. Immediately after this, we cut back to the house where Kirk and Edith are talking about dreams of spending all the money that they spend on war on peaceful stuff and then making out. Yeah. yeah. We then immediately cut back to McCoy, who's running around yelling about things uh, until he passes out. And the man that he was yelling at finds a phaser in his pants and accidentally vaporizes himself. So what if the, uh, the random element was this guy? I know. This is my <laughs> preferred episode. <laughs> oh no, the random guy that was on the street there just randomly. It, he was essential for the timeline of the future. Oh no! Yeah, apparently he wasn't important. McCoy wakes up in the morning, finds his way back to the same mission that Kirk and Spock are working at. He looks really terrible because he's got splotches on his face and bad makeup. Since then, Edith sees him. He takes him upstairs to rest. He comes in there because he smells coffee and it's like, I want coffee, man. And he's like, I can't stay, though. I, they're going to get me. And she's like, well, we got a cotton bag. We can hide you. Spock got his computer working again and now knows exactly which timeline they need. Edith needs to die. Oh, no. Apparently, if Edith lives, she starts a nationwide pacifist movement that prevents the U.S. from entering World War II, letting the Nazis have enough time to complete nuclear weapons and win the war. Hmm. This seems like a bad move overall. Hmm. It all seems a little fishy. Yeah. Hmm. In the mission, McCoy has recovered enough where he can talk to people, but he believes everything that he's seeing is a hallucination. We have another pretty pointless scene about him talking about how everything isn't real. Well, I, I will give them some credit here that McCoy is, is, you know, has some good character building here in that he's like, okay, this is really weird. I have some good guesses about what's going on, but all of them make no sense. So either I'm hallucinating all of this or it's even worse than I thought. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad, but overall it's just weird, awkward padding that doesn't really go anywhere narratively. 
True. Later, Kirk prevents Edith from tripping down some stairs, and then they make out some more. And Spock is like, you should have just let her trip down the stairs. What if you saved her life? And he's like, idiot, she dies in a car accident. (laughs) It's okay to save her life now, but not later. Okay. Back in the mission, McCoy has willed himself into a better state and gotten out of bed. He talks to Edith about how grateful he is for her help, and she is equally, like, talkative but can't stay very long because she has a date with this guy she's going to see a movie with and they make a big deal about how mccoy doesn't know who clark gable is clark who she leaves and meets kirk outside kirk is equally confused about who clark gable is and this leads her to saying oh mccoy also didn't know who that was And he goes mccoy oh my god and they run back across the street to where mccoy is just coming out of the mission doors and the spock is there too suddenly yeah they call over spock and they all have a great happy reunion Edith begins slowly walking across the street towards them, but doesn't see a big old truck coming towards her. Well, I will say that, like, moments before, like, Kirk also, like, kept her from being going over because she wasn't paying attention. Yeah, she doesn't pay attention to the crossing the street. McCoy tries to rush out and save her, but Kirk holds him back until the car hits her. And McCoy goes, do you know what you did? And Spock goes, he knows. Yes. He's sad now. They're all magically returned to the ruined city. The Guardian says, hey, time's back to normal. You want to go see more history stuff? And Kirk says, no, I'm leaving. <laughs> In fact, he says, let's get the hell out of here. Yep. And then they beat him up, and that's the episode. Hey, that, that's, I think that's a very good good response to this whole situation. No, no, let's get out of here. Like, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> So see, everyone talked about this as this big emotional payoff and this, like, what Star Trek's really about, making big decisions that you have to mull over and whatever. One, it's a glorified trolley problem. A little bit. Two, they don't mull over it or have any emotionally impactful decision-making or anything. Well, I I will say that at some points it kind of seems like Kirk's wavering, but he doesn't really kind of waver explicitly enough not really really he has one scene where he very dramatically tells spock i'm in love with edith keeler like a normal human says and (laughs) then that's about it he says i'm falling in love with her and that's it he just lets her die at the end this is this is the bit that i really agreed with in an interview i saw where ellison said in his original version of the script Kirk runs to save her and Spock holds him back, which would give you an actual emotional payoff. His ending to the episode was Kirk is willing to sacrifice the future to be with this person that he loves and Spock stops him. Yeah. That would be an actual emotional payoff. Yeah, I'd have to agree there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will disagree that it didn't have any payoff. I, You know, it just... That one would have been a lot better. <laughs> they didn't really have, like, much. Like, McCoy tries to save her and Kirk stops him, mm-hmm. which is just, this is just reinforcing that Kirk was never going to let her get killed. There was no doubt that he was going to let this happen. Yes. Which arguably makes his, like, weird little infatuated love story with her highly unethical. A little bit, so... Uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't mind if I, you know, hit, hit it and you then you die. It's all good, right? That's it. He he has no emotional connection to this woman. They they try to set it up, but this the combination of this kind of bad payoff at the end, 
like Shatner's wooden acting and the amount of bloat that they put into the episode elsewhere to keep them from having more than three scenes together kind of ruins anything that makes it seem like they're actually having a love story. Overall, you know, pretty good episode, but, you know, cut out some bits and add more of other stuff elsewhere. And then I know this isn't exactly the point, but I just can't get my head out of this space. That's like the crux problem of the episode does not exist. Like their their conceit that a pacifist movement started by this woman lets the Nazis win World War Two is ridiculous in any way you can approach it. A tad bit, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't really kind of follow at all as far as you know, you know, general trends would be. Though there was, you know, admittedly, uh, you know, during the uh, you know the thirties and you know early forties, a a bit of a uh, you know uh, a strong sense of isolationism as far as American foreign policy, not necessarily pacifism. Yeah, there was a strong anti-war movement but it was entirely based on isolationism as opposed to you know like just let's not have war yeah it's more of a let's let everyone else sort of deal with their own problems yeah what happens in europe has no effect on us over here why should we worry about it we've got our own problems like this old great depression thing you know so there's that there's like they didn't want to enter the war in the first place which means the pacifism movement would have had to have been enough of a absolute pacifism like there's Mm -hmm. there's like five kinds of pacifism here this would be absolute pacifism which means no violence ever no matter what even in self-defense doesn't matter if you're you're being invaded or you're being punched in the face yeah you need to uh yeah totally chill out everything's good so it would have had to be an absolute pacifism movement strong enough to prevent the united states from entering world war ii after pearl harbor which would be pretty 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 ridiculous honestly so it falls apart there but then even if the united states didn't enter world war ii most historians agree that all the u.s did was speed up the inevitable fall of the third reich yeah well, there's there's still that whole you know soviet union business they were dealing with yeah it would you know been a lot bloodier and a lot longer of a fight but uh would have eventually ground them down as yeah well. it would have lasted a few more years but but russia would have defeated germany like it was inevitable at that point in the war mm-hmm. so the u.s not entering the war would not have let the nazis develop their secret super weapon program which they were done experimenting with heavy water by 1935 yeah. <laughs> they had successful heavy water plants they, they, they maybe wanted more heavy water but yeah you know nothing would have changed the u.s wouldn't have entered world war ii it would have never had the economic boom from all of the war factories suddenly switching over to civilian manufacture of little war damage we would have never left ourselves out of the great depression and we wouldn't have become a global superpower so it'd be a um, very divergent timeline still but not quite as they're sort of yeah suggesting we we don't know what would have happened. We arguably, if the USSR and the United States weren't having a a worldwide pissing contest, we probably wouldn't have had the space race. So mm-hmm. yeah, the Star Trek future wouldn't happen. But the Nazis wouldn't have won. There was uh, too many things going against them. Pretty yeah. much everyone except the US, you know, going against them is kind of enough. You no. could argue that fascism under Stalin in the USSR would have spread, and that could have been bad. Yes. All right, maybe that's maybe that's the real alternative future. Maybe. Maybe they're not allowed to say that, because the USSR did have a great deal of power at this time period, including yes. forcing a character into the second season. Yep. <laughs> which we'll get to in a couple episodes. 
Well, I, I will, uh, you know, you, you know, have I guess two things I want to mention here. First off, if this alternative uh, universe where the Nazis did World War, win World War II, uh, you know, you know, it was, you know, according to this episode, the inevitable outcome of this uh, alternative timeline. Then obviously, that's where you get uh, the man in the high castle. That's that timeline. Yes, <laughs> I could not get through the first episode of that on on Amazon. It, it's a bit of a, it's a it's a tricky watch. Uh, I'm partway through season two. Anyway, uh, the other thing I wanted to sort of, you know, I guess jump off from here is that, you know, this uh, pacifism idea uh, isn't necessarily something that fits well with the 30s, but it maybe resonates better in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe we should, you know, uh, mention, you know, get, you know, get on to the, the hippies there again. Yeah, well, there was definitely a rising pacifist movement in the 60s for Vietnam and Korea. Mm-hmm which were two really dumb wars that we were involved in. It's like, well, uh, Korea, things are just kind of stalemate, like, forever, like, still. Uh, and then Vietnam, things were just kind of madness all over the place. And, yeah, you know, it's like, well, we're not really even sure what we're fighting for because everyone here is just kind of assholes. Yeah, mm. which, that's the other thing that really got me with this episode and why I don't... I, I honestly often feel... Like, I'm watching a 100% different show than everyone else is when I read other critiques of Star Trek. Because mm-hmm. this episode didn't have a high concept. It was a weird propaganda-y anti-pacifism episode that they somehow had to gel with their pre-existing conceit that peace, which we never actually see in the rest of the show, but this idea that peace on Earth and a global government is what allowed this level of space exploration and future technology. But in this episode, they have to try to gel that with an anti-pacifist message. Well, I guess in some ways this might be an opportunity for us to sort of, I guess, you know, compare and contrast with something here a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, this is sort of like, you know, wagging its finger at sort of the, uh, you know, left-leaning, you know, pacifist sort of thing. You know, let's, you know, give peace a chance sort of folks. Uh, but it's sort of backdoor and in, in, uh, endorsing a, a different so, uh, sort of uh, uh, leftist sort of a philosophy, uh, the Antifa movement. So let's punch some Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> For those who are unaware of or have gotten weird information from the last couple of years, because it has been sort of back in the news. Uh, Antifa is a, uh, a shortening of words that's all about, that, uh, you know, originally uh, came from the term anti-fascist or anti-fascist action. Uh, that in the, you know, sort of started in the 1920s uh, as a response to the growing fascism in Italy, where you have these black shirt uh, paramilitary fascist guys promoting uh, Mussolini, uh, kind of roughing up everything. And so people are like, uh, we don't like this anymore. Let's like resist it something, you know? And so, uh, you know, and so there's sort of different movements of that uh, sort uh, of all sorts of different ideologies before uh, the Second World War. During the Second World War, they got pretty well stamped out. But a lot of the elements and people there uh, continued on as we like resistance members and things like that during the war. Um, after the war, uh, the, you know, the, I guess the focus of Antifa became much more either left-wing or anar- uh, anarcho-communist in certain, uh, certain other that phrase there, uh, that they were, you know, very much explicitly, you know, anti-fascist ex- explicitly, but they were also co-opted in a lot of the Eastern Europe c- countries to sort of be brought into the new communist 
state system is sort of a yeah we're 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 this despite the whole dictator stuff you know whatever but um you know uh, elsewhere in the world is very much like no dictators are bad still so let's like be against that um and so that's sort of you know the you know the inception of the more modern antifa sort of a, a, a dealio here and uh they're you know, the more recent uh, incarnation, at least in the U.S., is uh, generally on the left wing still, uh, and is very you know sort of anti-authoritarianism in various forms. Um, now, feel free to jump in here if you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting on that because they're they're being very anti-pacifism, but if you bring in something like Antifa and other anti-fascist movements, there's a lot of discussion. And it's kind of the crux argument when you get into discussing pacifism as a moral philosophy is what do you do with fascism? Mm -hmm. Because the basic idea, if you're going with something as hardline as like absolute pacifism, which is what they're suggesting is happening here, yes. uh, that is working off of the conceit that all sides are looking for something that you can negotiate, you just haven't. Let's all, let's all talk to each other and everything will work out if we just talk to each other. So give peace a chance, man. Yeah, but if you're dealing with something like authoritarianism and fascism where violent takeover is pretty much built in, mm -hmm. you, there's no middle ground between we want to operate as an independent nation and we want you all dead. There is no, yes. there is no middle ground to come to a, a compromise on. So uh, it's like, well, I guess we, that whole talking to each other isn't gonna necessarily work here yeah which gets us to the much more usable and much more often realistic and what most people actually practice conditional pacifism which is pacifism is a good idea and it's what we should always shoot for is nonviolent solutions that cause as little damage as possible but mm -hmm. there are times when violence and military action is necessary usually in self-defense or the defense of others there's not really a you know quote total just war here but we're going to try to avoid it if we can you know you know manage it though it's interesting to note that during the 30s and 40s uh we didn't really have a problem with fascism yeah, the u.s was sort of like yeah we're gonna keep doing our own thing here but we're not gonna be like totally ideologically opposed to it yeah yeah europe's kind of an an issue uh we had the olympics in nazi germany the u.s like took part in that so we didn't have that much of a problem with a fascist government could get along play along you know everything's gonna be great it wasn't really until later that you know the anti-fascism became part of the propaganda and it wasn't even until fairly late into the war, basically when we've already won, that the actual atrocities that the Nazis were carrying out during World War II became widely known. It wasn't like we went into World War II and went, these guys are, you know, are genociding people over there. Like, we weren't in there fighting the Holocaust. Most people in America didn't know about this. And a lot of the U.S., including a lot of the major leadership, agreed with the anti-Semitic sentiments that the Nazis had. 
So it's, a, it's like, well, you're monstrous, but we're also okay with that, monstrous. But we do have a little bit of issue with you know, attacking our military bases here and beating up our allies a little bit too much. Whoops. <laughs> World War II was not this like big, righteous, let's go in, fight evil thing that everyone remembers it now. It got turned into that later because, as it turned out, the people you were fighting were doing monstrous things to people. Yes, and uh, it's it's very, you know, justification after the fact. Which, it's fine. Like, there were de- they were, even without knowing all of the horrible stuff they were doing, they were still doing horrible things that were mm-hmm. publicly, you know, publicly around. People knew about this. We should have entered the war earlier, and we didn't because of our, you know, xenophobic isolationism. Uh, wasn't FDR, like, campaigning on keeping the, the America out of war? Yeah, I believe he was. It, so, yeah. <laughs> if, if it hadn't been for Pearl Harbor, the U.S. wouldn't have entered World War II. And I think this episode bothers me a little bit because of this kind of... Con- it's it's just the American exceptionalism again. It's like, you know, America is the only uh, power that really matters during the 20th century, clearly, right? And then pacifism is holding us back from exceptionalism. And that is badness, apparently. <laughs> And the the way that they try to gel it is just this weird line where Kirk says she has the right idea and peace really was the answer, but not now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which begs the question, when? Because this is obviously... The 60s? <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. You get into the 60s, and I think later, in later seasons, you do get a little more of a countercultural leaning mm-hmm. where you are going more yet. into the you know vietnam is kind of silly maybe we should listen to the peaceful ideas but we've Not gotten so. so many episodes in this first season that critique the idea that we can be nonviolent at all and have literally called out pacifism as a negative thing in the past and, uh, you know, the times that we apparently can be pacifists, we have to also be super powerful energy beings. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think specifically about this side of paradise where it was such an obvious critique of the hippie movement and of peaceful coexistence to the mm-hmm. point that, that Kirk's entire motivation for fighting it was that being nonviolent and content is is bad and will harm people. It's just inherently terrible i guess huh? yeah so so they keep coming back to this violence is good idea that seems to be propping up the ideas of the time the government line of vietnam is this good just war we are fighting and you know pacifism is going to hurt us you could read this episode as saying if we let this pacifist movement take over the russians are going to become as bad as the nazis and take over the world and this glorious future we have is never going to happen oh no our glorious future that we just keep doing the same thing over and over again with Hmm. even though you kind of you play (laughs) into this idea to try to develop this non-existent love story everyone keeps going on about that that kirk and edith have similar worldviews that you know they both love peace and look forward to this future technology and everyone benefiting from from immense power of technology and space flight and things but she wants to have pacifism and peaceful coexistence now and we're told that that is 100 bad and that trying that will actually ruin the future she's dreaming of 
Now, that is a little troubling, you know. Well, I think, though, this is maybe a, a way to sort of uh, segue into how, you know, uh, sort of the, I guess, quote, the establishment sort of portrays movements like pacifism and things like that. That it, you know, implies that maybe all of pacifism is this absolute pacifism and there's not, you know, sort of different flavors of it. Yeah. It sort of, you know, I guess, spackles over with this, okay, if you believe any of this, you're obviously on this camp entirely of this specific flavor of it, as opposed to the other sort of, you know, you know, uh, you know, like more pragmatic or consequentialist sort of stuff here, uh, as far as, uh, you know, uh, you know, alternative forms of uh, pacifism. Uh, and, uh, and so obviously if you're going to be on, you know, we're, we're painting you in this light with these sort of pieces of evidence to make you look as bad as possible to discourage the other forms of pacifism, pacifism as well. I don't know exactly if there's like an intentional misunderstanding of the like nature of pacifism as much as there is kind of a response to the th- threat of the um, military economic powerhouse that we built up during the Cold War. Because so much of our economy right now in the United States is based on upholding our military yeah, you know, it's a, is it seven hundred billion now or something like that? Yes, each year, <laughs> and that's like you know contracts for building fighter planes that they have in some states, and contracts for building tanks, and just all this like arguably unnecessary stuff that we manufacture to uphold the military. Oh, and it's more than just manufacture. Um, you know, sort of full disclosure, folks. I was myself a military contractor for a little while. Yeah, so and... was some people in my family, like. <laughs> Like I basically anybody who's worked for a long enough time in in like physics or computer science has worked for the military at some point in their careers. It's it's a little tricky to avoid because like well I need like to get paid sometime. Um, what are my options? <laughs> but uh, I will also uh, point out that uh, you know sort of from my own experiences there that you know there was you know I guess you know money being pushed uh, towards stuff that. I guess, you know, good for the whole military readiness, et cetera, et cetera stuff. There's money being pushed towards uh, basic research, which is applicable well beyond you know, military uh, considerations. There's also a bunch of money that was kind of not really going anywhere useful. And, uh, and despite that, yeah. <laughs> like, there's, there's valid budgeting critiques to be made. But I'm not even trying to say that we're like wasting all of the money we put into the military. Some of it's going to good research and things. But it's such a major part of the economics of the united states that you have to get into these hyperbolic defense arguments if someone says maybe we should spend a little less money on the military you basically have to respond with what do you want no military at all and you're going to just let people roll in here and take over you're a terrible person because you have to have this super strict defense of the military in order to uphold like half of our economy. So go if we go even just a little bit, that's a uh, you know tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that's not being spent this way, huh? Hmm. Well, maybe it is time to uh, you know uh, readjust our uh, sort of priorities. But you know, it doesn't have to be all at once. But come on, guys. Yeah, I mean that's part of the thing. No one wants to see it as a readjustment because if you move things around maybe the state that's getting all this funding for building military jets won't get all the funding that we get for say building solar panels somewhere else like you know these it's the readjustments that scare people and they want to equate that with you know the ruination of the world 
So it's going to keep catastrophizing as a word. Yeah. And the catastrophizing automatically leads to this, like, you know, pacifism is always absolute pacifism. Mm-hmm. Now, That's you right. also, you do have this kind of uh, interesting moral argument, though, with having this massive military that before a couple years ago, when we started moving more isolationisty, you kind of had this America as the police force of the world idea. Yeah. Which leads, your, which it's argued how well it was actually utilized. And if one nation should have the power to police the rest of the world, you get into that kind of argument. But it arguably does get into some forms of conditional pacifism. Yes. As we saw in the earlier episode with the energy beings, we have the you know military might to back up an idea of enforced pacifism elsewhere in the world. And we are able, to, we are capable and able to project our power, and thus we don't have to actually, you know, worry too much about the situation. And there is a like moral argument for the idea that you can use a overwhelming force of power to kind of enforce peace, because you have become the deterrent. Yes, it's kind of the thing that they did w- that they do with like uh, Doctor Manhattan in the Watchmen comics, having like a a being that is so powerful that you can't have a war because he will just stop you. You you you'll, you either just you'll stop fighting because he said so, or you won't exist because he said so. And so it kind of is a big disincentive. Um, we, we've talked about uh, you know ethics of time travel and such uh, quite a bit previously. Uh, How do you feel about these uh, these currents here? Uh, I mean, I guess it's gravity waves and similar. Yeah, it, it sort of. I guess in this episode, uh, treats time very much in a fluid fashion. It's sort of you know you know you know creating these pulses initially when they're first encountering the planet, uh, and when they're and when they're back in the past, you know, Spock's like. There's maybe sort of currents of times that will just sort of happen to bring us, you know, in conjunction with McCoy, uh, because otherwise there's no reason for us to be here. Um, and uh, I didn't really feel good about that, honestly. You're you're arguably working with the predestination paradox in this episode. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm suddenly forgetting the term, but there is like there's a philosophical idea of time that time is not something that actually moves and progresses it's just happens to be the way that we have to perceive it yeah sort of a, a static universe where the universe is kind of technically set in stone but we can only see the now of it kind of yes but also that a a time period like you know let's say in this episode saying edith keeler in the 1930s would be the same thing as saying Edith Keeler in America. It's just it happens to be a location they are in that exists the same as any other location. The fact that we lack the ability to freely travel there makes no difference. Well, time and space are linked together, but it's the whole you know, getting from one place to another is always a problem. But that that leads to an interesting thing, because if you're looking at it philosophically from a viewpoint that all of these places just exist as, as like locations... Someone living in the past has the same rights as a person living in your present. Yes. So letting someone die in the past to save someone in the future is 
pretty much morally indefensible because they should have an equal right to existence. So in other words, Kirk is effectively a, a murder by negligence. There we go. Yeah, which I, I had trouble finding a how morally responsible are you if you let someone die through inaction. And uh, you know me and my, my sort of like, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a third option sort of stuff. And, you know, these sort of, you know, moral quandaries that, you know, given that Kirk is back in the past now. And if he, you know, wished to both have his Star Trek future and save uh, Edith Keeler, the options, you know, presented to him are, are, are more numerous than he seems to conceive. Yeah, my initial thought was just grab her and bring her to the future with you, you idiot. That is one option, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, grab Edith. You know, and say that, oh, yeah, she died in a car accident last week, guys. Didn't you know that? And they just kind of, you know, wave it away around, and then suddenly she's alive in the future. Yeah, which is, uh, I think it's the plot of a Outer Limits episode. Sweet. <laughs> I think it's also a plot of, oh, and, you know, this, oh, I forget the name of the movie. But basically, the uh, people from the future go back in time and take people off uh, airplanes they're about to crash and uh, transport them into their their future. Because, you know, their world is dying. So <laughs> it's like, we need people on the other side of this catastrophe. But, um, yeah, and so you, you, you know, another option is, uh, you know, you save Edith and you, you know, either convince her to, you know, tone down this, you know, this, you know, absolute pacifism stuff until after the Nazis are defeated. Uh, or alternatively, you stay behind in the past and campaign against her, you know, and then you have this sort of weird you know, average serial love relationship sort of thing, maybe. Uh, but that would be like a whole different show. Probably not workable for Star Trek. <laughs> I'm kind of reminded of um, of the Asimov time thing. I've just read this book. The Asimov had sort of a time bureau idea. Oh, is this uh, the how oh, um, the, the, the one with like the, the uh, you go different levels and there's like different. End of infinity. There we go. Yeah, yeah. It basically dealt with this idea that humans don't know what's good for you because the entire conceit is that your people keep messing with history to try to ensure a like consistently good timeline. Mm -hmm. The way that they mess with history leads to it being so static and unchanging that there's no human advancement and eventually you reach a point where we can't continue to it advance and everyone dies out the things uh you know you, you know there was no you know quote struggle to fight against that will push people to be trying to seek betterness or something like not that. not exactly that just the people who were in charge of deciding what was a good outcome had a certain set of values that they kept enforcing across all of time come on guys you're, you're taking away people's right to cho choose these things come on and we hit that with these kinds of episodes it's it's arguably the same kind of thing we hit with our with our ideas on uh natural conservation now you have this idea that that the change in the timeline is always bad because it's different from what you have and it's always framed as you know somebody went back in time and interfered and we have to go stop that because you know, they made a change and therefore that's bad. But we don't know that them changing the timeline is necessarily bad. We don't have enough information. Oh, and uh, who knows, maybe in this alternative uh, timeline where, uh, you know, Edith dies and you know, the Nazis, you know, you, know, you know, are able to push their, their agenda forward, 
Yeah, maybe the Nazis are later uh, defeated totally, and the uh, the Earth is united under a peaceful civilization. There's no eugenics wars. There's no World War Three, and uh, we're able to get to the Star Trek, you know, idealistic future a lot sooner. They just happen to not have an Enterprise over that planet that moment. Yeah, we basically have no no idea what else happens in these alternate timelines. Yeah, yeah, it's like, well, we kind of have an idea up to this point, but that's about it. It reminds me of this idea that we have in in environmental conservation that basically like. A human interference is you know inherently bad and we need to fix whatever we did which i'm not arguing against it just reminded me of this mm-hmm. keeping things as static as possible is kind of the thing that we've had in environmental conservation for a long time like you know a species is dying out and we have to come help it because that's what we're doing as humans and arguably if like hu- if human activity caused the species to die out and we can do something about that that's probably good but, you know, you definitely have this ebb and flow of things in nature that we are still trying to wrap our heads around how much to interfere with. And again, I'm not trying to argue that we shouldn't. It's just an interesting parallel in my mind. To, in, the, in the long scope of things, you know, species do evolve, species do occasionally die out and all that. But, uh, you know, given the pure rate of which things have been, you know, being killed off due to human activities, it sort of has, you know, kind of enforced this uh, sort of a viewpoint that, you know, any species going extinct is probably our fault right now. That's probably a good tactic to take. Though you yeah. also <laughs> you also hit the thing that, like, you know, several years ago we decided that forest fires were inherently bad things, and we suppressed mm-hmm. them for years and years and years. And then later we discovered that actually they were a super vital part of the ecosystem that we shouldn't have been suppressing, and now we've messed up everything. And now there's massive forest fires because well, there's all this extra wood here that didn't burn previously in smaller forest fires. So you get, like, you know, large sections of California on fire kind of perpetually now. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. And hmm. it's it's just interesting to me. They never once in any of these time travel narratives examine whether or not they should be trying to return the timeline to norm. Uh, you know, funnily enough, I've been uh, watching some Stargate again recently. Yes. Uh, and uh, we actually, I actually got onto an episode that kind of, you know, does a little bit of time travel manipulation. Uh, the, they first screw up the timeline and that's, you know, it's like leads to all sorts of horrible things that will eventually lead to the earth's destruction. But, and so that's, that's considered bad. Um, but the, eventual timeline that they do end up with is changed from the original one but only just enough to prevent them from going back in time in the first place <laughs> it's like well i was thinking about going back in time to go pick up this bit, bit of alien technology here but i guess since we now have it because our past selves hid it away in the right place for us to find it we don't have to now <laughs> yeah that was a fun episode yes <laughs> well i guess it all worked out cool <laughs> You get into some of those weird temporal paradoxes. That's one of the only times I can remember that they intentionally made a temporal paradox for the benefit of their future selves. Yes. <laughs> or past selves, depending on which direction you're looking at it. Yeah, I guess it sort of went to the, went to the point, though, that, well, everything's already screwed up, and this might be the best outcome we can do is a future that's almost exactly what we, we're living, but it's just slightly different. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they, they found a, a harmonious way to change the past. I don't know how I feel about the predestination paradox in this episode. Because yeah. in in the original script, that was another change that I feel like they could have used to better effect in the episode. Is in the original script, the Guardians 
who are large eight foot tall aliens in the original version and not a big stone gate uh they're huge and large yeah they they flat out tell kirk what went wrong they go hey your doctor went back well not the doctor in that episode there was this weird convoluted subplot about a guy selling drugs on the enterprise that they took to the planet to be summarily executed which Mm. was odd but yeah that that seems a bit more complicated than need to be yeah that's some of the fluff they probably should have cut out (laughs) they get down to the planet guy goes back in time the guardians go hey this guy prevented this woman from being killed and that messed up your timeline and then kirk has to go back in time to make sure that she's killed and then falls in love with her and starts questioning the entire endeavor well that's that seems more i guess focused and you know because then you know there's no having to sort of derp around with like you know radio equipment and try to like oh we have to you know open up our tricorder with but we don't have a computer to read it properly sort of stuff yeah there was a lot of that that whole computer thing was kind of fluff that was unnecessary his his whole bantering about needing to buy platinum was like Mm -hmm. it was a fun like developed a little bit of character but it was unnecessary Mm -hmm. the thing with them stealing the tools that apparently mean he doesn't need platinum anymore was unnecessary (laughs) So, you know, it's just sort of all these little bits that were fun and interesting, but not useful for the plot. Yeah, which is weird because they cut out a lot of the original script for time, like the whole drug selling subplot, the entire thing with it being an actual populated city full of aliens. Yeah. Uh, There was an entire action sequence where they went back up to the Enterprise and discovered that in this timeline it was run by space pirates. Are so Arr, they I say. cut out a lot of stuff, <laughs> but then they just added in a bunch of fluff for no reason. I guess they needed, you know, you know, someone decided that this new fluff needed to be in there for reasons. I guess you could have expanded the love story and let Kirk and Edith have more than four scenes together. Heck, you know, like maybe even like uh, you know, cut in. Like in media res, like where Spock and Kirk have just arrived in the past, and we sort of like learn what they're there for to do as things go go forward, uh, and only even see the Guardian like at the end or something like that. Yeah, you could have done that. I mean, it doesn't really matter because the I liked how brief the future setup was. It took about ten mm-hmm. minutes. Yeah, that was fine. But then most of the stuff they did in the past was pointless. Yep, <laughs> and I I felt it was more pointless because you never got any doubt that kirk was gonna let this woman die especially especially now like i could see the first time you watch it and they're like which of these timelines are we doing and you're like oh we don't know if he has to save her or kill her this is a big mystery thing like since we went into this with all this foreknowledge knowing that she's gotta die in the end of the episode all that was like like they could have like set that up a lot better I guess this maybe, you know, uh, draws attention to, you know, the the problem with mystery stories. That uh, once you've sort of experienced one, uh, you know, experienced the whole thing once, it kind of loses its luster to a certain degree. Well, unless it's a very well set up mystery story. Indeed. You see, this <laughs> is the problem with twist endings. Like, a good twist ending, you watch the thing and then you see the twist and then you want to watch it again to see all the stuff that you missed where they were setting it up and they made it completely obvious. This is like the difference between uh, like Sixth Sense and Fight Club. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wait a moment. There was, there was some weirdness earlier. 
oh no <laughs> or uh memento was like oh yeah so this is the guy wait no this isn't the guy guy was somebody else entirely oh god <laughs> yeah like if they set up a good twist watching the movie over and over just shows you how well they set up the twist if it's a bad twist it's like well that didn't make any sense you know alternatively we could always go the clue route just have different endings i still like the idea that they go through this thing they have Kirk go through his stupid emotional payoff thing where he lets Edith die. They go back to the future. It's like, what happened? Everything's the same. It's like, no, you didn't save the person you needed to save. It was Milk Dude. Yep. <laughs> Come on, guy. What do you do? You have to go back in time again. Oh, man. <laughs> you don't have time to save Edith, though. You have to deal with Milk Guy. Because you see, maybe it was Milk Guy that uh, pushed Edith in front of the car in the first place, and it looked like an accident. <laughs> or maybe he led the, like, the like anti-pacifist movement. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were weirdly okay with this guy comically shooting himself. It's like, what was the point of that? I don't know. <laughs> which just also, if you think about it too much, which is basically why I started doing this, uh, he is leaning into this idea that they're just garbage people. She yeah. says it in the beginning of her speech. There are some people who just can't get off the booze and can't work hard enough and can't apply yourself. You cannot be part of my glorious future. And thus you will be ignored. You must get out now. This poor homeless dude who was affected by the Great Depression and has to steal milk from doorsteps to survive shoots himself and no one notices or cares and it has no effect on the timeline because he was a useless garbage person. Dang it, Edith. Why do you have to be so mean? Like, that did not endear me to her in the way that no, I think no. it was supposed to. I think to a certain degree it's supposed to sort of try to drive up the notion that she's sort of someone of this time period who is, you know, strong work ethic, etc., etc. sort of stuff. We've seen a bazillion times in the show so far. Uh, and, uh, you know, she has to sort of, in, you know, endorse that before she goes idealistic. Yeah. Uh, or good something. old Puritan, <laughs> good old Puritan values before you get into the actual, like, this is a good person who we're supposed to be sorry to see die. Yeah. We don't see enough. They, they have so much stupid stuff about building the computer and Kirk just woodenly announcing he's in love with people and talking about alien, alien authors for no reason. We we well, don't get we don't, very much set up. I don't know if they're actually aliens. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. They just lived on a different planet. We don't get any setup of her altruism. We get like a little bit. She runs a food kitchen. She runs a yeah. soup kitchen. That's that's the entire extent we see of her altruism, which is yeah, good. But yeah. the way that they're talking about her is like she's some sort of nigh god being that can convince the United States not to enter World War Two. Yeah, well, the, the bit of, bits of information we have about her is the soup kitchen. She seems okay with people who steal things because uh, she's, you know, totally F the police and all that. Uh, she's also, you know, super willing to hide people who are very addled in the back room uh, for better or worse, save it if they could. They, they seem to be acting in a fashion that may be a little bit dangerous for your own personal safety. Um, so uh, what else do we got? We got the, the her speechiness there. Uh, and she likes Clark Gable movies. Yeah, and the speech was pretty iffy. Was yeah. mostly I predict a future of glorious nuclear energy. Cool, but what else you got? Yeah, I just feel like they <laughs> definitely didn't set her up badly. 
but they could have used some of their wasted time to set her up better and they could have set up the love story better and i completely agree that kirk just closing his eyes and letting her get run over undercuts the emotional message yeah you, you want to do a i got a nitpicky thing if you if you're will, willing for it nitpicking sure why not so the prohibition you know is uh you know you know there's a whole this whole uh the 18th amendment sort of thing where they uh you know, they ban uh, booze mahal in the United States, right? Yep. Uh, so this story takes place in 1930, but Prohibition didn't end until 1933. So who's on the booze here, lady? Everyone. <laughs> Prohibition increased the amount of, of like drunkenness mm. in the United States. True. Speakeasy is everywhere. Wait a moment. She's actually running a speakeasy. <laughs> Probably. Like, especially in Manhattan, the entire underground bar scene... In Manhattan was huge. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of like modern day bars got their start there. <laughs> I keep forgetting this place. Uh, this takes place in New York. Sorry. <laughs> like, wait a moment, because because all the sets feel like Southern California, honestly. But, yeah, you know. they do. I was trying to figure out where they were to get that view clear of a view of the Brooklyn Bridge, honestly, because that's somewhere near Chinatown. Well, you know, they did take this, you know, that uh, bit of uh, footage in the uh, you know '60s, most likely. So. You know, the exact location might have, like, buildings in it now, so... Yeah, it could. Also, you can't see any stars. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it was a really long exposure still shot. <laughs> maybe. I haven't seen Orion since I moved here. <laughs> well, it's still there, I'm pretty sure, uh, though I don't really see much of the sky where I'm at right now. Too close to Cincinnati. <laughs> uh, light pollution. Also, it's really cloudy all the time right now. <laughs> Like the clouds I'm seeing outside are all sorts of spooky-like. Anywho, uh, where are we? I don't know. I have the definite impression that we're running out of things, which is disappointing. Since this, everyone talks about this as like the best piece of sci-fi thing to come out of this series, and I honestly found it a lot more empty on the on a philosophical level than some other episodes we've seen. A little disappointing. Um, it was know, written yeah. better. It was definitely written better. Yeah, yeah written better. Uh, you know, you know, some of the you know, you know, acting from like, you know, especially like, uh, uh, you know, you know, Coy really kind of plays up that paranoia sort of streak he's going through there. And uh, it's both ridiculous and it's like, OK, this is very much serving the plot, how you're overacting here. But, you know, so I, I kind of work with that. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I sort of overliked, you know, generally liked his performance there. But Kirk and, you know, uh, Shatner's always kind of meh there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh spock is all right <laughs> i'm really hoping that i just have some different tastes to a lot of the people who talk about this show because if this is supposed to be the, the case. <laughs> best thing that we get this was a very resounding fine for me this was like a fine episode it it probably isn't my even my like absolute favorite one we've seen it's just better written and has some okay acting and character interaction in it now uh, I, I guess to uh you know uh steal a a term for from uh, you know SF debris. You know uh, all series are relate. You know uh, rated on you know compared to their their own their own series as opposed to each other. So you know compared to other sci-fi, yeah, this is kind of lackluster overall. But uh, you know this is on the better end for uh, me on mm. the uh, on the original series here. Well, speaking of it, my my girlfriend's been doing this thing where she will point out which next generation episode seems to be a soft remake of the original <laughs> series episodes ah. this one definitely seems to be going for the uh the episode uh yesterday's enterprise oh, yeah. when 
the old Enterprise gets pulled through a time warp out of defending a Klingon colony and throws the Federation into war with the Klingon Empire. Uh, so we got ourselves a dark future now, and we basically got to you know, send these people back in time so they can die, so they can demonstrate that the to the Klingons that, hey, these Federation people do have honor and they are willing to fight as opposed to... Yeah. And we won't go. I, we won't go too into it because I do hope to get there one day. But yeah, uh, like <laughs> don't the, worry, guys. We'll get to the next generation eventually. They definitely ha- they have a woman who sacri- who is sacrificed for the good of the future. She mm-hmm. decides to do it and basically goes against orders in order to do it. She's very committed to the idea. It's like, well, this is gonna suck for me, but uh, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> She's not just incidentally killed for no reason. Because she's crossing the street to like see some people who shouldn't have been there in the first place. Indeed. <laughs> uh, it does kind of beg the question, though. What was Edith's other uh, date with the front end of a car going to be like? That's true. Well, let's see. Nineteen 19- milk guy. Nineteen thirties <laughs> was still early car stuff. Yeah, they did have a uh, one horse drawn carriage there with the milkman, but yeah. Uh, don't- remember anything else so you were still in the time period where cars like people and cars shared the road Mm -hmm. and it was incredibly dangerous and cars uh there's like if you watch that adam ruins everything series he does a really good synopsis of this but uh the car manufacturers basically made up an incredibly offensive slur uh for people who got hit by their dangerous unregulated death machines in order Uh-oh. to convince people to like cars more than pedestrians and that's totally kind of is the thing today because you know i definitely run into a number of folks like yeah you know, these people like you know walking in the middle of the street you know they're just awful and all this and you know people mm. on bikes or motorcycles how oh, they're just as bad uh. yeah it was exactly that the thing that we kind of forget is like the j in jaywalking was mm-hmm. actually an incredibly offensive slur at the time oh dear I guess I'm glad I don't got context for that. Yeah. <laughs> like, other people have written about this. It's pretty easy to look up if you look at the history of cars in the United States. But it's pretty awful manipulation by a large corporate entity that was trying to sell super expensive things to people that reshaped the way we have, you know, mass transit in the United States. And kept me from being able to walk easily. Damn it. <laughs> uh, I do appreciate crosswalks, but uh, there needs to be more of them. Mm-hmm. There's just so much in the U.S. that's not good for pedestrians at this point. Like there are like massive, you know, amounts of communities that you need a car in order to get anywhere. I do think Otherwise, it's interesting, yeah. actually, if you look at this episode, thinking about that, no one gives a second thought to the car. Yeah, <laughs> it's all framed around like Kirk let her die, and you you even have this thing of like she's just wandering through the middle of the street. Like the the person in the car bears a lot of responsibility for this. Wait, wait, wait! Can, do, is this giving us an out to uh, prevent Kirk from having any moral responsibility on this? I mean, arguably he has <laughs> a bit of moral responsibility, but there's an equal amount of moral responsibility on the driver who is it's never addressed. Yes, in fact. Do we even see the driver? There's, no. There's people to like go and check, you know, you know, Edith there on the gra- ground there. But I don't know if any of them are actually the driver. In <laughs> fact, the moral the moral message of the episode is drive recklessly because you're saving the world from Nazis. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> That's a weird message. 
Well, uh, you know, I guess we can run over Nazis their car. Uh, Ugh, <laughs> no, can, don't go there. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's there's some darkness there. It is time. Let's just move. It's it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Yeah, please, please rescue us, game show. <laughs> Ouch. Okay, Isix. Award time. Let's forget we talked about that. Yes. Welcome to the award section of the program where we're going to forget about everything we just talked about because, uh, so the first award for their, you know, their high score and some time travel shenanigans goes to Guardian of Forever. They get the Time Warp Award. What do they win, Gepard? All right. This is the fourth time we've done the Time Warp Award. <laughs> Let's do the Time Warp again. <laughs> Let's do the time warp again. It's just a jump to the left. And a step to the right. Put okay. your hands on your hips. <laughs> That's probably enough. We're good. Good idea. Oh, where do they win? Uh, Is it the time warp? They went awkward singing, and there you go. <laughs> good work, Guardian Forever. Keep up the good time travel work. Our second award is the Good Idea Wrong Time, apparently, award, which goes to Ida for, well, being all about the peaceful you know, coexistence of all people, just apparently in the wrong time, apparently. What, do they, what does she win, guy put? Edith wins a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook, because apparently it's the only way you're getting anything done, Edith. Sorry. Well, I hope she makes good use of it uh, in that other timeline. Anyway, our, our third award is the Antifa OG Award, which goes to Kirk for making the, sure the future is able to punch Nazis. What does he win, Gepwin? Kirk wins some very conflicted feelings, given that current Kirk and past Kirk was actually like a big fascist apologist right-wing douchebag. Hmm, yes. Shatner is uh, very disappointing. Hmm. We got a fourth award, a uh, a late uh, arrival into the whole scene here. It is Where Are the Guards Award again. Once more, uh, it appears up and it's going to Transporter Guy who gets himself knocked out by McCoy's karate chops. What does he win, Gepwin? I think the Transporter Guy and all of the Transporter Guys need some helmets. They keep hmm. getting knocked out very easily. Yes, it'll uh, save them uh, both in uh, terms of uh, concussions and, uh, you know... Bad of you know work evaluations down the line. I feel like there's a reason security guards are always wearing hats. Yes, <laughs> it's to uh, keep you from being so easily well punched in the face, or back of the head, or anywhere else in the general head region. So I'd like to congratulate all the winners today. Thank you very much, everybody. Yes, I hope you enjoyed the time that you spent here on the galaxy's favorite game show. Woo! Yeah! Oh, we're almost done. Yes. Holy smokes. There's just like the one more episode done, and then we're done with the season. What's this new episode about? Next episode is called Operation Annihilate. Annihilate? Yes, it's a very odd <laughs> title. Uh, I, I remember seeing this episode. There's some sort of amoeba-looking squid things. And yeah, I remember this one too, yeah. <laughs> Spock has a very, very pointless injury uh i remember one line uh near the end where 
McCoy says, you know, I, I was so worried about his Vulcan eyes. I didn't think about his Vulcan ears or something like that. Yeah, I have a feeling the next episode is just going to be McCoy's racism. And I I definitely remember the central conflict of the episode is pointlessly resolved. And in fact, uh, you know, it's so pointlessly resolved that they actually like try something and they're like, wait, we don't even need to do it that much. Yeah. <laughs> we overkilled. <laughs> I guess that'll be a nice, nice break for the last episode here. Something silly and kind of pointless. Yep, you can join us for that next week when we watch Operation Annihilate on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the crew meets some friendly brain slugs who want the best for you. Really? You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>